0: After post-surgery, I was actually able to try my own product in a moment of a lot of pain, and it was awesome. I was actually surprised. I'm like, I know I'd done all the clinical studies, and it was great, but, you know, until you actually get to do it on yourself, you truly don't know how effective is it.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of
2: technology and health. He's one of those tech people that came to healthcare to find a career of significance, but Matthew Stout has actually been destined for the health tech world since his youth. A combination of entrepreneurial skills, curiosity to understand others, and personal commitment to empathy have become the perfect recipe to bridge the tech and medical world through the founding of Applied VR. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shalich. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode, GE Ventures, Multiple Paths to Big Impact. So, Lisa? Yes, David? (laughs) Have you ever used one of these... VR products. I have actually. Well, I haven't. I've actually tried Matthews, which is <laughs> really? cool. Um, so what's but, the deal?
1: Like, is it? Is it like this Oculus thing? Do you put yeah, on? Yeah, like, and... like,
2: yeah. The yeah, There's a couple different ones: Oculus and Samsung and different ones. But the the coolest one, not notwithstanding that Matthews is cool and has a good purpose, the coolest uh, non-purposeful one I used was at the Chicago Museum of Science and Technology. They have this whole like immersive VR experience. where you can go off to the. Um, the uh, international space station and hang off the space station in space and look all around you at the stars. It's really crazy. It's it's quite amazing.
1: Wow! But so does it? You know, the appeal of it is that it's supposed to be immersive. Does it really work? Like, do you lose yourself and you really feel like you're there? Yeah,
2: you do. I mean, it's it's it. I mean, I think it depends on the application. But in the space one, you are there. I mean, you are there. You look around. You can look 360 degrees around you, and. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's and do you lose the self? I mean, sensory, I'm really curious about this. Do you lose the self
1: consciousness of like, oh my god, you're like the geek wearing the huge helmet and the stuff, or? Um. Like, do you suspend that disbelief? You can, I yeah. think.
2: You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm always conscious of it's going to mess up my hair. But what can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um, Matthew Stout aspired to be a lawyer, then a senator, before he realized he was an entrepreneur at heart. A foundational experience of losing a beloved and accomplished father taught him that he should never waver in pursuing his dreams, and that has been his guiding principle since early in his career. He's had highs and lows along the way, but he's always kept a focus on what his dad taught him about curiosity and the importance of an expansive view of the world. Today, Matthew is the CEO of Applied VR, a company that uses virtual and augmented reality technologies to reduce the pain and suffering of patients. Matthew, welcome to Tectonics. We're delighted to have you today.
0: Great, Lisa. Thanks, you and I appreciate you guys inviting me on today.
2: We're glad to have you here. And um, I was fortunate to meet Matthew recently at a conference. Um,
1: one of our guests, right? Uh,
2: yes, one of our guests, Brennan Spiegel, Dr. Brennan Spiegel from Cedar Sinai, put put on about VR in healthcare it was a lot of fun. And and when I asked him, what's your you know most significant company that you got here, and he said this is the one. So I uh, introduced sure, myself sure. to Matthew, and, he, and here he is. Um, now, Matthew, your dad was a, clearly a formative role model for you. Tell us about him and the main lessons he taught you.
0: Yeah. Uh, so my father was a, um, a patent lawyer for General Electric. He was responsible for worldwide licensing for their technologies uh, at GE, actually. So, um, so uh, GE is something very close to my heart because of that. And when I was growing up, he would, uh, because he was for the worldwide, would always go over back in the 70s and travel for weeks at a time to China and Japan and Germany and Latin America and would always come back and regale me of these stories of these faraway places that, you know, when you're growing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that is absolutely a world away. And uh, so it always instilled in me this, this desire and belief that I wanted to go out and explore the world and sort of, in that sense, fo- follow in my father's footsteps. And uh, so that, that was probably one of the most uh, formative elements of my, of my childhood with him. Wow. And uh, but later on in life, the other element is sometimes in what someone doesn't do can be just as informative.
2: Yeah, well, t- talk about that a little bit. You talked about your dad, you know, having this dream and, you know, business dream and not getting a chance to realize it and how that impacted you.
0: Yeah, so my, my dad had this lifelong dream of uh, ultimately being an entrepreneur and opening up his own law firm. But, of course, he wanted to make sure that uh, the four kids got through school. And so here he was uh, after I was a baby and I'd matriculated into Northwestern. And so he finally could go off and pursue it. And uh, three months later, there he is on the precipice of of realizing his dream, and he gets diagnosed with lymphoma leukemia. And it was just absolutely heartbreaking at that time. And uh, I'll tell you, there's two things came out of this. One is uh, I'll forever have a, a warm spot in my heart for GE because, uh, they were, it was, they were amazing. They, you know, they, my dad had retired, but they brought him back into GE so that he could get healthcare and he could, uh, you know, they could, uh, fund it through, uh, his treatments and everything. And, uh, second thing is I remember when he died a year and a half later, I was standing there and this sort of just daze and, and the two things I said to myself was one, live life, and then two, always pursue my dreams, no matter what the cost. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I, I still, even today, 20-plus years after his death, it, it's still, when I think about it, it still hits me the I'm
2: very sorry to hear that. Um, so you are gonna follow him into the law, into politics in some way, perhaps, but you took a side uh, trek into business. What, what drove that decision?
0: Well, I'll tell you two things. One is actually working, uh, doing a summer internship at a law firm for two years in a row and realizing that the stuff I was working in the first year, <laughs> I was still working on the second year and uh, nothing turned me off more. Uh, and then also, I'd, I'd always harbored this notion of being a senator. Uh, you know, for me, I'm really driven about trying to help people. And so I was uh, doing a summer internship at with Senator Coates when he was the senator of Indiana at the time. And uh, it was, well, it was a great experience down there, but a lot of idealistic people think they can change the world until they get bitter and older. Um, and uh, they, uh, and when I was talking to Senator Coates about what it took to become that, and I was sort of, I thought I was on the path to be a lawyer, he said, you know, Matthew, there are way too many lawyers in DC that have, actually have no idea what it means to run a business and and that's really what we're supposed to be doing is helping people in the fostering environment to to grow companies and so if you really want to make a difference uh before you try to get into politics go and learn business you can actually come here and and have some real world experience so how did that go (laughs) yeah (laughs) so uh when i so when i came out of there you know well i'll tell you the other thing is at one point uh my dad had when he was sick had hoped that i was gonna he was going to live long enough to be able to see me graduate from law school and to talk about pressure on a kid man that is oh uh, my god yeah so so in some sense uh, i'm i'd I'm, always try to look at the bright side of things because he passed away before i i ended up graduating i was able to end up you know going in the direction that was right for me and and not feel that pressure and so um, i had uh, when when i was coming out of school there was not multiple opportunities, but when you know but when you're going into thinking about going into investment banking or consulting, you know they they love people that all they wanted to be as bankers or all they want to be as consultants and I didn't know what I wanted to do just I want to do something in business
1: and this was around nineteen ninety nine is that right
0: this, this is uh, in nineteen ninety one so um this was there was a bit of a you know it was a a, a mild recession at that at that time but I was, I'd gotten a job in consulting and, uh, I realized that actually what I wanted to do was, was for some reason I was drawn to banking. And so I turned down a job at McKinsey and, uh, ended up going over and packing my bags up and moved to Asia and lived in Asia for a year where I did everything from right for the economist to was a bartender to teaching English in, in Taiwan. And uh, it was a, that was probably one of the other more transformative moments in my life, because it was the first time in my life that I actually had to truly do something on my own.
2: Now, I understand you actually own or are a, sh- a shareholder in some bars now in Paris. So was that like such a great experience being a bartender that you had to like, buy <laughs> yeah. the company? Was that, was that how that worked?
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I, I got such a great connection to it. That I'm like, I'm going to go and in, invest in, in something that's probably going to lose money perfect. So, uh, but, but then just to
1: fast forward to, to your actual entrepreneur um, to work, it sounds like you, I know you started several companies, but your first was um, kind of peak internet um, uh, in 1999 with Ushock. Yeah. Can you tell us about that company?
0: Yeah. So Ushock was definitely a company that at, at its core would have been a huge company today called Dropbox. Because <laughs> uh, our original idea was this, this simple idea of saying uh, people are going to need to have a ubiquitous access to their data and to their files. And so uh, let's create a virtual hard drive. And then of course, being in the internet at the time and getting excited by a bunch of other ideas that came out, we completely morphed it. And while there's an element of the Dropbox uh, piece to it, we lost sight of that and started to build up a bunch of other pieces to it, trying to make it kind of a city search for universities. And uh, we built it up and you know, one of the biggest uh, Ah, uh, brands at that time on the in the college space, and then completely crashed it into the ground afterward. As uh, you know, we had a couple opportunities to be bought, but they ended up going out of business before we went out of business. And, uh, <laughs> the, and say the, the the two things came out of that. One was that was the first time in my life that I actually didn't succeed at doing something that that I had set my sights up, and that is a tough lesson to learn. Uh, they talk about, res- you know, this whole idea of resilience. You know, it, it took me a while to come back from that one. Um, but more importantly, it also taught me about focus. And, uh, you know, I think the hardest thing as an entrepreneur is what you say no to mm-hmm. more than what you mm-hmm. say yes to. Because as you're building it out, you're, you're, if sometimes you can lose faith in your own vision. And so you start to question yourself and you start to say, oh, maybe we should do this or maybe we should do that. And that's a recipe for, for disaster for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we had a show a, a, couple, a year or two ago now with Jeff Clapp about his company, Better, which uh, did not succeed, and so had like the most watched show we've actually or listened to show, I should say we've we've ever done because I think that whole idea of what you learn from failure and the experience of it is really powerful for people.
0: Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a huge believer in the failure side. I think that, yeah, that those <laughs> those are what tests our metal.
2: Yeah, although I think success probably feels better is my experience of it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, to be sure, to be
1: sure. <laughs> Lisa likes winning.
2: Yeah, really. <laughs> Hashtag winning. Uh, so then you went to work uh, at the, on the innovation team at McDonald's, which I think is a fascinating thing. What was that like? I mean, what, what can an entrepreneur learn or teach at a huge company like that? And did
0: any of it involve the Hamburglar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was, it was a fascinating experience, actually, going in there. I, I was very entrepreneurial in my heart. But you know, after I had come out of my uh, uh, U-Shock days, there was a, this idea of just wanting a little bit of a safe harbor, right? I, I, I can't tell you as an entrepreneur how many times you try to pick up the phone and call someone and they reject you, and it definitely you know, tests your ego there. So when you now flip on the other side and you're going in as an entrepreneur-in-residence at McDonald's Corp., there's not a person who's not gonna take your call. So it was going from one in 10 calls being answered to 12 out of 10 calls being answered. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was nice, uh, but at the end of the day, McDonald's at that point, they were they did some really smart things initially. And one of their biggest insights around innovation was they recognized that as a company, they weren't great at innovation at the center, at the core. And so they brought in a bunch of entrepreneurs and, and people from different walks of life who could apply their knowledge and, and try to come up with new ideas that leverage the competencies of McDonald's. And, yeah, one of the things that they realized that you know, as soon as you bring it into the, the, the mothership, that's so interesting that's going kill the innovation if the mothership is not oriented toward innovation.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: and so they did they did a really good job of keeping us separate. and some you know red boxes and examples of DVD rental business came out of McDonald's, and uh, it was highly successful.
1: I had no idea that that was the origin of it,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. the the idea was that McDonald's has ubiquity. there five-minute drive within 85% of the world's wealth yeah so if they could uh, use that as a new distribution model
2: so is the red named after like Ronald McDonald's hair is that why it's called red (laughs) box
0: yeah you know actually I don't know the the origin of the red box name I think it literally it was a red box (laughs) <laughs> that. But I think
1: the concept of like, well, how do you innovate within a large company? I mean, you know, how, can you be an intrapreneur? How do you protect innovation from corporate antibodies? And it sounds like at the very least here, you really got to give McDonald's credit for recognizing what they do well and what they don't do well. And just as a, as a quick promo here, actually, for Lisa, um, she has a great piece about the movie The Founder, um, which we should include a link for it with this yeah, uh, thing, because uh, mm-hmm. it's it, great points you made. It's one of my favorite pieces you've written.
2: Thank you. So you left there, though, all that security and went back to startup land. And and I guess we can thank you for, uh, for all of those uh, s- flat screen TVs we see at the gas station now and when you started Outcast Media, huh?
0: Uh, yeah, that's, that was – it's awesome to, when I tell people what I used to do and uh, they get so angry with me. It's such a uh, – That was my reaction. I just <laughs> –
1: Lisa's <laughs> watching it in front of her.
0: I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it was, it was, a, it's interesting, right? When you have a business that is not necessarily mission driven, how do you create a mission that gets people bought into the vision that you're trying to build? Right. And, uh, and ultimately for me, I've always been about the people. <laughs> and so, uh, so there for us to, to, to go and do this and, and try to do something transformative at a gas pump, which is not the most innovative area in the world, you know, for <laughs> us, the, the mission became about each other. And so, you know, we made it, we didn't make it about trying to get one more advertisement or one more gas pump. We made it about each other. The fact that we're out there on this mission, we were outcast. We were out there trying to do something different and climb this mountain, but we were doing it together. And so that was personally, that was incredibly rewarding, but I got to tell you, there is nothing rewarding about selling advertising at a gas pump.
1: A guide to being evil. (laughs) How did you wind up like, like were you walking around one day and said, you know what, how did you come up with an idea like that? I mean, I, I, I have, I, I'm so happy to ask you this because I have wondered.
0: Oh, and and so by the way, when someone sees an idea like that, you should see some of the other crazy ideas that, that come out of it. Like I had people call me up and they're like, Hey, we love what you're doing at the gas pump. What about putting a TV in the bathroom stall when you're taking a (laughs) crap? And I I was like, well that's yes, that is captive time. You you are correct about that. And it can be that a long time turnover, people. <laughs>
2: the
0: dwell time can be good, but what brand is going to want to advertise That's there? That's
2: hilarious.
1: White Cloud or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And Color Guard, right? There's a health context.
2: Yeah, right? Nice. So you I sold your there? company. Outcast was really successful. You sold it to Verifone. What was that like selling your baby mm-hmm. um, with all your team that you love so much to uh, another, you know, very large company? What what was that like in terms of your experience personally and professionally?
0: So I think this is something that I, I personally did not expect the feelings that came out of it. I mean, I thought I was going to go to you know, the day we announced it. I thought I was going to go to bed, wake up the next morning, maybe be a little hungover, feeling great. And uh, the the feelings that I had about it were uh, I was completely stressed out because suddenly overnight. I had no more objective in my life, right? It, I was, I just sold this business, this thing that I had worked on for 10 years. It was my baby. It felt like my child and I just sold it off and it was really hard. It's almost like I had to go through a period of mourning in order to, to let it go and open myself up to something new. And on top of that, I didn't know what I wanted to do. There are a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs that are in a particular, let's say they're in uh, machine learning or they're in a particular data space or and they, they sell off their technology and they love what they do. They love that specific element of it. They love that industry. And so they want to stay in it. And for me, once I sold, I the only two things I knew was that I never wanted to touch a gas pump again and I never wanted to um, sell advertising. Did
1: you buy a Tesla?
0: <laughs> no, I, was, I actually, I, honestly, I thought about it, but I'm like, well, I have nowhere to go. So why am I even getting a car? And I live in L.A., <laughs> which is pretty, pretty hard to get around without a car. But. I'll tell you, this is a a big shout out to Uber and Lyft. I ended up uh, selling my car and I took Uber and and at that time, Uber, but now I do Lyft. uh, I took Uber for a year and a half and it was awesome. Mm. It was amazing to be able to meet people like that and have conversations and just really, kind of get connected. And LA is a hard place to sometimes, I think, get connected as opposed to yeah, New York, yeah. where you can't help but bump into people.
2: Well, maybe at the Plastic Surgeon, you can meet people. <laughs> so how in the world did you get from gas station flat screens to virtual reality? Uh,
0: so I was I was going on a vision quest, trying to sort myself out and figure out what it was I wanted to do next. And, and just in terms of a, of a framework to think about it, a friend of mine had said, you know, Matthew, a lot of people, the first half of their life, they think about success the second half of their life they think about significance and I thought nothing captured my feelings I didn't know how to frame it but that absolutely captured my feelings and so now I had a prism through which to view opportunities and say how am I gonna really go out there and and create success and I'm a big believer that there's this thing called the book of life that we are all contributors uh, chapters to it and I certainly wasn't gonna have my my chapter be about advertising at a gas pump and so I wanted to uh, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think this is where you know, sometimes the, the universe, if you open yourself up to the universe, the universe answers. And my wife happened to be flying back from Miami. She sat next to the CMO of Magic Leap at the time. It's a, a billion dollar uh, startup. I think it's the largest funded startup of all time. They're doing some amazing stuff. Uh, it's running the augmented reality world. And uh, so he regaled my wife with, with this whole new world of AR VR and she comes home and she's like motivational speaker man having about 50 cups of coffee and saying, Matthew, I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to do something in the world of VR, AR. I don't know what. You just have to do it. You have to listen to me in this one. I know it. I feel it. And so through her enthusiasm and also just because I also want to try to get to sleep that night, uh, I was absolutely said, I'm going to go and and check this out. And I met with a bunch of people in the VR space, Oculus and, and HTC and a bunch of others. And I saw these amazing applications in gaming and entertainment, the ability to actually feel like you're on stage with Paul McCartney or to feel like you're at the 50-yard line of a Dallas Cowboys game or a, a Golden State Warriors game and play to be in the middle of a gaming experience. But that's not gonna create significance for me, right? That's not gonna do something that I'm passionate about try to help make the world a little bit better place. And so I was scratching my head and I was a little lost and didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I knew there was something there, but I was trying to figure that out. And then through uh, a mutual friend, I got connected to now one of my partners, a guy named Dave Sackman. And uh, Dave had done a TEDx talk over in London, talking about the power of VR to actually drive positive behavior change. And he told several different stories about how it's being used to create empathy, to help someone see through the eyes of someone else, to break down racial bias, that it can be used to create empathy for what some would call inanimate objects like uh, coral in a sea. Uh, and, and how it can actually be used to reduce pain. And that it's actually been proven to outperform opioids. And as I was listening to him, one, it completely inspired by everything he was saying. And two, I said that there's something here. This is what my mission is. And so I ended up uh, spending some time with, with Dave and uh, he and I became fast friends and had a shared vision and I ended up uh, coming on as a co-founder of the company, uh, Applied VR now and we, you know, we've been doing some, some custom agency work but we recognize that you know, we're in the middle of this opioid crisis. And uh, the stat I love is the, right now because of the opioid crisis, it's the equivalent of a 747 going down every four days That's uh, that's just tragic, and uh, that's our first line of defense.
1: But is the, so uh, I guess true related questions are, it seems where you're going is then the answer to the opioid crisis is for people to, um, you know, strap VR things over their heads and uh, and sort of uh, medicate themselves that way, Um, which seems, I don't know if, I wonder how much that's getting at the underlying issue, but what I also wonder about you must be making some progress because when we first talked with Brennan, um, he wrote this great blog about all of his skeptics, appropriate, very spot on skepticism about VR, uh, you know, about technologies in general, about how they fall off of people, about how they're not, you know, of the people they were doing some VR study on, people would not wear them. They were trying to deal with their other life issues. He was very under, you know, he really seemed underwhelmed. And now he seems to be... Um, you know, much more, you know, much still, more whelmed, much more whelmed, <laughs> well, okay. exactly, more you know, alive. still, still viewing things skeptically and from, from, you know, from scientifically and strongly believes in, you know, controlled studies and all of that, you know, appropriately. But he, I, I think his underlying sense that there's really something there has, has changed. Um, and I imagine technologies like the one you're developing is really a part of that. Is that what? Yeah, so Go ahead. Tell, tell, tell me what, why this seems like it's a might be a really big deal, where it just seems so mockable.
0: Yeah. So, so first of all, I would you know you go back to where it all started, right? This is back in the early 1990s, and I always want to give credit to Hunter Hoffman, who was the 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 true insight innovator around this whole idea of acute pain management. I'm gonna I'm to separate acute pain from chronic pain because I think it's it's, a, it's an important distinction. But with acute pain, you know, he had this insight that we like to think pain is at the point of contact, but, but actually we have pain receptors in the brain and the more we focus on something, the more we feel something. And so if we can hijack the brain, goes back to, the, to something that Lisa said earlier on about you really feel this notion of presence that you're somewhere else, I can hijack the brain and put that cognitive load on, I can literally get you to feel less pain. And, and even back in the early 1990s, when he did his very first uh, controlled test uh, 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 clinical study, this was for burn victims going through debridement, he was able to demonstrate that VR actually outperformed opioids, not just on a subjective basis, your zero to 10 pain score, but on uh, an objective basis, using an SMRI to measure the pain receptors in the brain. And when the person was in VR versus opioids, it actually outperformed the opioids from that perspective. You know, that launched uh, hundred plus studies, all validating that same insight but the problem was the technology itself was $100,000, was big, clunky, tethered to big machines. And so it just lived in the world of, isn't that interesting? And so, and when the for very early days of mobile VR, you know, just even three or four years ago, the technology was still kind of clunky. And I mean, just, I'm just, I myself have been amazed at how fast we have been moving on that technology curve to getting something that is actually comfortable, easy to wear, Easier to use. And so, you know, one of the problems that we were seeing before is there was this if the person put it on and the person used it, there was great effect, especially in healthcare that, that the, you know, the population is older.
2: You can talk about your own experience, I think, right, Matthew?
0: Yeah. So I actually had um, lower back, I've had lower back pain. I had a, a L5S1 herniated disc, and that I'm a big outdoor runner and hiker and everything. And I haven't run for five or six years because of my disc problem. And it finally got to the point where I had to go get surgery for it and this uh, about eight months, eight or nine months ago. And rare is the time do you actually get to use your own product in the world of acute pain. And in this case, uh, after post-surgery, I was actually able to, to try my own product in a moment of a lot of pain and it was awesome. I was, I was actually surprised. I'm like, I know I'd done all the clinical studies and it was great, but you know, until you actually get to do it on yourself, you, Truly, don't know how effective is it. What
1: was the image that you? I mean, this is actually maybe we could even find the clip. There was a uh, episode of Mad about you a few years ago, where each each of the two protagonists got to use a virtual reality or uh, goggles to kind of experience their own personal distracting fantasy. <laughs> and so, you know, his Paul Reiser's was something like you know, I uh, know, scantily clad people, and then um, um, uh, his wife's was um, uh, Paul just saying, "You were right, and I was wrong." <laughs>
0: but so i'm curious what was yours uh mine was what not was my yours? wife saying i'm right oh that would have been awesome that would have been that would have relieved a lot of pain um the mine was uh it was it was one of our our uh, serious games called uh, bear blast and it was it was awesome for the first five minutes it was i was completely distracted taken somewhere else and then unfortunately my my ceo brain kicked in and then i had to go and figure out all the things that we could do better and you know, then at that point, I wasn't able to appreciate it. I was <laughs> the like,
1: problem you know. of using your own technology, huh? Yeah,
0: exactly. So, exactly. I
2: mean, you guys have had, you know, some pretty s- remarkable success. You're in 190 hospitals, eight countries. Um, I know you've done a lot of clinical studies to prove results. How easy or hard is it to convince new clients to try this? What's the selling process like?
0: Well, so I think part of this is the fact that we're in the middle of this opioid crisis and, you, and you've you got someone like Scott Gottlieb saying that ho- healthcare providers need to embrace new non pharmacological tools for pain management and we've got this this device or this concept that's been around for 30 years it doesn't take a lot of time to convince them to at least try it the key is to get those clinical champions to embrace the technology not just try the technology to find that clinical champion who's going to say i i believe in this and i'm going to try to do what it takes cuz ultimately we're trying to change the standard of care, and, and that's a big hurdle to, to cross, right? And so it's about trying to find those clinical champions in, in different hospitals, and, and we're absolutely finding them.
1: Are these prescribed? What's the cost? In other words, I understand somewhat how um, traditional pain medicines are prescribed. How, how is your product prescribed? How does it wind up in the hands of a customer?
0: So today, right, we've been focusing on uh, rolling out into the healthcare providers, and that's partly because you know, the technology still is a little clunky. It's getting better every day. So for us, we want to go and we didn't want to wait for the VR adoption curve to hit it to home. We thought we could create that adoption curve by bringing it into hospitals. And so that's why we've been uh, very aggressive about trying to get it into all these hospitals uh, across the U S and so it's there, it's basically, they buy the hardware and then they pay a recurring fee for the software. Uh, but really, where I think the ultimate opportunity here is, is when we're able to get this into the hands of uh, patients in their home. And with the launch of Oculus Go, which just happened a couple of days ago, and HDC uh, and Lenovo are coming out with theirs, I think you're going to see us moving much more rapidly into the home. And you know, and for us, while we're doing acute pain in the hospital, actually, where I'm really excited, where we're going to make the biggest impact, is in the chronic pain crisis that we have. It affects over 100 million people in America and 38 million of them are severe sufferers. And these are, I mean, these are some people that, that some of their stories are absolutely tragic. And we actually just launched a a new biofeedback that this gets into sort of the notion of biohacking, where we're using your own body in your own, your own bio data to drive the VR experience and we, you know, we're doing small early clinical studies and we're seeing some just amazing results already. And that's a, for me, that's the power of connecting the mind and the body together.
2: So we're running out of time, unfortunately. You could probably talk about this for hours, but um, I just wanted to, to mention, I know one of the other legacies your dad left you was a passion for travel and you've made a commitment to visit every country in the world. How, how are you doing on that question? How does that affect your work? How does it affect the things you bring back into the company?
0: So uh, that is absolutely a passion of mine. In fact, I'm excited the fact that I crossed over my 100th country last year. It was Singapore, not the most exciting country, but, uh, and uh, there's only, I think about 90 plus more to go. i use the, the uh, UN as my marker for it. Um, but the, the thing that is that is great about travel and going to other countries is, is it's this idea of expanding your perspective to help you learn to connect with other people from very different walks of life. Whether you're down in Haiti and getting to see some of the worst poverty I've ever experienced in my life, or you're over in the Middle East and connecting with the, the, the Arab population, the ability to try to make these connections, have empathy, listen to their stories and, and hear what they have to say. It, it's, it's so powerful. And, and I bring that back into our company as we're sitting here trying to Actually, help patients in their daily lives. It's, we have to listen to them. I actually think, as in healthcare as a whole, we need to do a better job of taking a patient-centric approach and trying to understand how do they think about trying to access different types of therapeutics. And and so, what you know, having that empathy for other people is some, quite frankly, I think we've lost that, ability to a degree here in the U.S. And, and it's, it's, I'm just hoping that somehow maybe VR can be a way that helps us see through other people's eyes so we can feel a stronger connection.
2: Thank you, Matthew. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. really enjoyed having you on the show.
0: Great. I appreciate being here, guys. I really love what you guys are doing.
2: Um, today's guest, Matthew Stout, was speaking to us from Los Angeles, California, and we are here in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley. I went to this um, VRAR conference uh, that I mentioned earlier because I was sort of curious, and I'm very skeptical. I talked to you're VR curious, (laughs) VR curious, exactly. And um, I was really taken with what I saw. I mean, it may be early, and it's you know clearly the headsets are annoying, um, but I think they will get better. And as that happens, I think this stuff could be fascinating. But let me, let
1: me ask you something. So one of the things, you know, he was describing it as, you know, basically it's like a distractor. And it's sort of, it was just, you know, as something that, oh, that could help sort of the old But opioid. it really
2: actually retrains your, your brain. It creates this kind of neuroplasticity change, I think, or so they they think.
1: Retraining your brain, I mean, that, that that's one way to look at it. But I'm just sort of wondering if it's just sort of this mesmerizing thing. I mean, if you look at now how already people, you know, one of the, you know, how so many people are already immersed in, you know, you know on, on their devices or are immersed in like kids in YouTube or, you know, both um, our friends Bruce Booth and, and Bijan, who is our guest, talking about how their kids are completely absorbed by Fortnite. You know, like, you know, I mean, you know, my kids can't stop watching it. I mean, can, but like a lot of YouTube, right? You know, like as much as before we can prevent it. And totally absorbed by it. And then if all of a sudden you add to that this completely immersive component. I mean, I do. I wonder well, if
2: you Well, I think you're confusing, though, the everyday life and no 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 you know, but, purpose, I, but i'm saying but, right? but you have the but if
1: you're if you i'm just i don't want the therapy to be worse than the disease if here's the here's the good news you're not going to be addicted to opioids which would be good news and has unquestionable health risks but if basically the idea is it's it's sort of like out of brave new world where you're giving every the brave new world something we're giving everyone soma right where they're sort of like just kind of mesmerized and dead-y. but the idea
2: isn't to use it 24 hours a day it's to use it for brief therapeutic episodes that allow you to retrain your brain to think differently about pain and the like. Obviously, you you know, you can't have people wearing these things 24 hours a day. They bump the walls, but you, but you know, the, the
1: idea of of breaking that pattern
2: of focus on the pain that causes the neuroreceptors to continue to accelerate the pain, you know, it's sort of a break, figuring out how to break those patterns. And and using that so I think I I really get the acute application of it I haven't spent enough time thinking about the chronic application of it and how you would you know prevent that problem that you're describing but I think it's a really interesting question and I'm sure Matthew has a good answer to it it'll be
1: interesting to see how this evolves you can Um, follow um, Lisa Sunan at VentureValkyrie.com and you can follow David's writing at Forbes we are grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode GE Ventures multiple paths to big impact take care Bye, bye.